The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, I wanted to begin my sermon, this message, uh, responding rightly to the God who knows you. Responding rightly to the God who knows you. That's going to be uh, what our, the message is about today. And just to begin, I want to remind you all of the things that God's word teaches us about his knowledge of us. God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows every detail of your life. He knows and understands the way that you tick. He knows the way that you are wired. He knows your fears, hopes, and dreams. He knows your strengths as well as your weaknesses. He knows your joys and your sorrows. He knows what your inner battles are, your struggles, your temptations, your sorrows, and your pains. He knows you perfectly, completely, entirely. God knows you. Not only does he know you, but God is with you. Always. Everywhere. There's nowhere to hide from him. There's nowhere that you could go that he is not already there. And he will never lose track of you. God is with you. God made you. God made you to be uniquely you. He formed you and shaped your physical body in your mother's womb. Your distinctive physical features, your personalities, your abilities, and even your disabilities. We're all a part of God's plan and purpose. He wired you the way that you are. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are the unique handiwork of the all-wise God. God made you just how he wanted you to be. He has also planned and arranged all of the days of your life. He has mapped out your days from the moment of conception to the moment that you take your last breath here on earth. You will not live a day too short nor a day too long. God made you and he made me. So how will you respond to this all-knowing, all-seeing, everywhere, present God who made you? He is the one true living God There is no other God besides him. Sadly, there are many today who hate God. They deny his omniscience and his omnipresence. They reject and resist his sovereign rule over their lives. This afternoon, we are going to look at what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us through his servant David in Psalm 139. And he will show us how we ought to respond to this revelation of our fearful, awesome, and wonderful God. 
we ought to respond with gratitude and humility to these glorious truths about our God. Gratitude and humility. And as we do this, as we consider who our God is, we must once again lift our eyes and our hearts in faith to our perfect mediator, to Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the only way. He is the only way that we can rejoice in God's total, complete knowledge of us and his presence always with us. We must remember that apart from Christ, we too were enemies of this great and gracious God. So if you're not already there, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're going to read the entire psalm, and then I'll open up our time in prayer. Psalm 139. For the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Let us go to this God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this privilege to have your word, to hear from you, Lord, to grow in our understanding and and knowledge of what a great and awesome God you are. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, humble and soft hearts to receive the truths that you would have for us. I pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted, that he'd be honored, glorified, pleased. I pray that you would bless your people. Lord, I pray for those here that are still in a state where they are your enemies. I pray, God, that you would bring them to the place of conviction. Lord, that you would save them. That you would grant them faith and repentance. Lord, we commit this time to you now and we ask that you would bless it. And again, that you'd be pleased and honored and glorified as your word is proclaimed. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Amen. This psalm was written by David. And as you probably noticed, it is a very, very personal psalm. In this psalm, David uses three different names for God. Uh, If you notice in verse 1, the all caps, L-O-R-D, which is used for the translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's in verses 1, verses 4, and again down in verse 21. There's a reference to the Holy Spirit in verse 7. And then there is the name translated God in verses 17, 19, and 23. But in addition to these names of God, David uses the second personal pronouns, you and your. He uses them almost 30 times in this psalm. In 23 verses, comes up about 30 times, showing us how direct and personal this communication is between David and his God. And David uses the personal pronouns, I, me, and my, almost 50 times in these 23 verses. So again, showing that this is no abstract, impersonal, philosophical treatise on the person and work of God. No, this psalm is the overflow of a worshiping and adoring heart. David is overwhelmed with the beauty and awesome attributes of God. 
Like all scripture, this psalm is God-breathed. It is God's perfect and inerrant revelation of himself and his character. But the Holy Spirit chose to communicate this particular revelation of God to us by allowing us to hear a very personal and intimate song of praise from David to his God. And as we consider these truths about God, I want you and I to respond like David did. This is what God wants and requires from us. May the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word with faith and humility. And may the Lord be pleased by the response of our hearts to his word. Our first point in the first six verses, the first six verses is God knows you perfectly and completely. God knows you perfectly and completely. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This opening statement is a major theme throughout this psalm. And we will see that at the conclusion of this psalm that David will actually invite God to once again search him and know him. And we'll talk more about what that means. But before we move on, uh, again, please take note that David begins by using God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. And a commentator, Alan P. Ross, makes this comment on that. The use of the personal covenant name, Yahweh, translated Lord, is appropriate, for it harmonizes with the emphasis on God's intimate knowledge and superintendence of the life of the psalmist, as well as his protecting presence. And uh, that was close quote. And also, note that uh, the sentence begins by saying, O Lord, O Lord, or O Yahweh. And in fact, every time that David addresses Yahweh, he, it begins with O. In verse 1, in verse 4, in verse 21, and also every time that David uses the name God, it begins, O God, 17, 19, and 23. What is the significance of this? When you say, O, does it not increase the intensity and passion and earnestness of your address? I've been with those, and they're praying, and they, they say, O God. Right? There, there's a certain intensity to that, right? Certain earnestness that is communicated in that. And it seems that David throughout this psalm, again, is overflowing with praise and wonder and adoration for his God. Again, this is no dry and apathetic review of theology. The tone throughout the psalm is intensely personal, and it's overflowing with praise to God. It reminds me of the words of the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And after they realized that they had just received a sermon from the resurrected Lord. Remember what they said to one another? Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? Their hearts were burning within them. 
They didn't know who Christ was, but there was something, right, about the way he was opening the scriptures to them and the impact and effect it was having on them. And may the Spirit of God cause our hearts to burn as he opens up his word to us today. Well, David continues in verses 2 through 4, helping us understand the extent of God's knowledge of him and likewise of us. He said, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, I believe the grammatical term is a mirrorism talking about the two extremes and therefore everything in between, right? When you sit down and when you rise up and that includes everything that happens. It's not like he only knows when you sit down you know, and then he's just unaware of what's happening until you, you know, sit back down again. You, you scrutinize, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. It's not just a general knowledge. It's an intimate, specific, close knowledge of all of David's ways. And again, likewise ours. Even, verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. The extent of God's knowledge is given to us here. He knows all actions. He knows everything that you do. He sees and knows it all. And again, he's not just vaguely familiar with the general pattern of your life. He knows the details. And not only that, but he evaluates it. He evaluates your life. He's not a passive observer. It says, verse 3, you scrutinize my path. Literally, the word there could be translated as winnow. Like the threshing of wheat, right? To, to get the grain, separate the grain from the chaff. This idea of, of a separation. It's a word picture that's used frequently in scripture. And it was based upon this, uh, at that point in an agrarian co- culture, this was a very familiar um, thing that they would witness and participate in, right? And getting the grain, separating it from the chaff. And the winnowing process would allow them to use the grain to make food. And it is used throughout scripture to describe the separating process of that which is valuable, the grain, from that which does not have value and worth, the chaff. And you can even see back in Psalm 1 where the wicked are compared to chaff, right? In contrast to the righteous, which is a sobering thing, right? It's God speaking. He says they're like chaff, the wind blows them away. And in the, it, even in the opening of the Gospels where uh, John the Baptist prophesied that the Messiah, that Jesus would come and he would, he would be involved in this, this winnowing, this threshing process. And it's used frequently in Scripture. But the point here is that God is evaluating David's path. He's, as, in a sense, winnowing it, right? Separating that which is good and worthwhile and righteous from that which is worthless and that which is wicked. And David says that Yahweh is intimately acquainted with all my ways. Intimately acquainted with all my ways. This is a deep, 
personal, personal and intimate knowledge. And again, this is not just true of David. This is true of us. God is the same. And his knowledge is no less today than it was in David's day and time. I wanted to quote from our doctrinal statement, the what we teach statement on omniscience. And this is what we have under what we teach for God's omniscience. God's knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent of the creature. In his sight, all things are open and manifest so that nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. God knows the future as well as the past. He knows and examines the hearts of all men. All men. That is what we believe because that's what the scripture teaches. And not only does God, is he intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Not only does he see all of our actions, but it doesn't stop there because in verse 4 we're told that even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So this is dealing with the thoughts, right? Motives. God not only saw what David did, and not only was he intimately acquainted with all the little details of David's life, but this God also knew all of his thoughts. And I believe uh, Pastor George mentioned that earlier in his prayer, that whether believer or unbeliever, that would be a sobering thing if everyone could see and know all of your thoughts. Everyone. Good, bad, things you're ashamed of, things you wish you would have never thought, ill motives. This is not hypothetical. God does know it. He knows it all completely. God knew what David was thinking before David said anything. And this knowledge was not just thorough. It wasn't just like, yeah, he had most of it down. You know, he was a straight A student. It's, it's exhaustive. It's perfect, complete. And God's memory never fails him. Listen again to David's overwhelmed response. Behold, O Lord, end of verse 4, you know it all. You know it all. All of it. Every passing thought, every hidden motive, every evil intention, every holy desire. All of it completely, entirely, comprehensively, exhaustively. Brothers and sisters, this is still true today. God knows your thoughts, he knows your heart, and he knows all of it. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. Nothing. And this is not true of only believers. This is true of all people, everywhere. Even his enemies. Even those that refuse and pretend like God doesn't exist. He knows the thoughts of believers and unbelievers, of the righteous and the wicked. The Lord knows all. Listen to Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only 
evil continually. God wasn't just concerned about the, the statistics of violence increasing, the actual actions. He was concerned about that. But he was concerned about the hatred in the heart, right? Which produced that violence. And even the hatred that existed there and didn't fully carry itself out, right? As Jesus said, what? If you hate somebody in your heart, what? You've already committed murder. You're already guilty. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you don't carry it out. You're guilty. You're guilty before God. First Samuel 16, 6 through 7. Remember these words? Samuel, he was a, he was a prophet, right? Godly man. Surely uh, he wouldn't judge someone just on externals, right? A godly prophet like Samuel. But what does it say? When they entered, <laughs> he, that Samuel, looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Just because he looks like a big, you know, strong king, because he looks like he can, you know, be a strong leader for the nation. God says, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when the Lord looked inside of Eliab's heart, it wasn't good and it wasn't pretty. He was not a man after God's own heart like David, right? And the Lord rejected him. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. And I'll start in verse 12. Hebrews 4.12. Remember, this is all related to God's omniscience and his knowledge of our, of our hearts and our minds. And notice the role of the word of God. In verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then look, look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things. Open. Laid bare. God doesn't have to look. doesn't have to peer in. He doesn't need to take extra time to try to figure it out. He doesn't need an investigative report. He doesn't need statistics. He doesn't need a detective. He knows it all instantly, perfectly. Let's look back at Psalm 139 again. Something that I hope will become apparent if it has not already, and I made a reference to this in the introduction, but apart from Christ, this is not good news. This kind of knowledge of God, of you and me, is bad news. <laughs> Of all the people, honestly, that you wouldn't want to have this kind of knowledge of you, it's the one who's perfectly holy and righteous and just and the one 
who your sinful thoughts and motives and actions and words are against him. They're against him. And so apart from Christ, this is bad news. Well, not only does God know us perfectly and completely, but God is with you everywhere. God is with you everywhere. Verse 5, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. And then look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God is with you everywhere. He is omnipresent. Again, in our what we teach document under God's omnipresence, God is all present. He is infinite. He is infinite in being, having no limits or restrictions to his size or to his presence. He is immense, filling and surpassing the universe. Nowhere can man flee from his presence. Nowhere. Now that's, again, bad news. If you're God's enemy and you're on the run, you're a fugitive, you can't, (laughs) you're not getting away. But if you belong to God and if you have become a child of his through faith in Christ, this is the best news, right? You don't have to ask God to come to you from somewhere else and rescue you because he's already with you. He's already with you. And remember what Jesus said in the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. I'm with you always, right? I'm with you always. Another reminder of Jesus' deity. And he, again, he gives these extremes. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go to the highest possible place, right? You're there. If I descend down into Sheol, to the lowest possible region, you're there. I can't escape you. And everything in between, right? Again, verse 9. If I take the wings of the dawn. Remember for Israel, the wings of the dawn, right? That would be referring to, well, same for us, right? The, the sun coming up over, over the east, right? Rising in the east. And he says, if I may, um, sorry, if I dwell in the remotest, remotest part of the sea, for them that would be the Mediterranean, which would be to the western extreme, right? So you have the, 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 uh, the east. In verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn and the west, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, right? So again, no, no matter how far I go horizontally, no matter how far I go vertically, <laughs> I can't escape your presence. You're, you're with me. If somebody kidnaps you and takes you to an undisclosed location, that location is not undisclosed towards God. And he's with you. 
He's with you. One example of this comes from a certain prophet. His name was Jonah. (laughs) We can learn a lot from Jonah. The Bible gives us good examples to follow and negative examples not to follow. I don't know if Jonah had read Psalm 139, but uh, if he did, he apparently didn't remember it or he was not applying it because in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. If I remember correctly, that was over towards Spain. So the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he, he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, <laughs> aren't you a prophet? Don't you know a thing or two about God's nature and his being? How do you think you're going to escape the presence of the Lord? Apparently, as we know, it didn't go very good because verse 4 says, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. So he didn't get too far away from the Lord, did he? Because he was fleeing the presence of the Lord and the Lord Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. And in verse 10, after he tells the, um, the sailors these pagan sailors, what he was doing. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Brothers and sisters, let's learn from Jonah. Don't try to flee the presence of the Lord. It's a futile and vain effort. And it ended very badly for Jonah. Not as badly as it could have been because the Lord was merciful. But he did end up sitting inside of a fish for three days, which I don't think I would want to do. Um, well, let's go back to Psalm 139. So God is with you everywhere. And the next point, uh, covering verses 13 to 18, is that God is your awesome creator. God is your awesome creator. Verse 13 David says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, They would outnumber the sand. 
when I awake, I am still with you. Are you thankful that God made you? Are you thankful for the way that God made you? We, our hearts should break for the way our society, in particular young people, are so confused and so deceived and so lied to, to think that they could be born in the wrong body. It's tragic. And sometimes we can be tempted to poke and make fun of it, but it is a tragedy. And our hearts should break, especially for the children and the young people, but really all people that are so deceived and fooled when God designed them. God made you a boy because he wanted you to be a boy. (laughs) And it's good. God made you a girl because he wanted you to be a girl. And it's a good thing. And he has good plans for you. We get so, the culture around us, we have to be on guard because we can get sucked in to the lies and the deceit and the just the irrationality of it all. But God is good, and he made us. And even those things that you might not like about yourself, I'm not talking about your sin, because that needs to go, that the, the progressive sanctification. We're not talking about that. Let's just be clear. But I'm talking about those things, just, just the way that God made you, your, your body, your, your limitations, your personalities, your giftings, your lack of giftings. Again, even your disabilities, Scripture makes it clear that God is involved in all of that. And it's all for his plan and his purpose and according to his perfect wisdom. And who are we, and we all do it, myself included, but who are we to question God and think that we somehow our plan is better than God? And that if it was up to us, we would have done better. better. We would have done differently. But we ought to respond as David did with thankfulness. I will give thanks to you. And when we hear about the different amazing aspects of the human body, as I've learned some from my daughter and her studies um, of the human body that are just mind-boggling, worship. <laughs> give thanks to God. It's, it's, a, it's a reflection of his glory and his wisdom and his goodness and his power. And he took dirt. <laughs> And he breathed life into it. And the cells and all these mind-boggling realities of the human body that doctors and scientists, they're, they're, they're still straining and struggling. They can't understand it all. They don't, you know, they're, they're just scratching the surface of it. And God, in an instant, made it all, designed it all, sustains it all, maintains it all. And each and every single person individually on this planet and everyone that has lived, will live, he's made and formed and designed them all. And he's planned out all the days and everything that's going to happen in their lives. It's all going to happen all according to his perfect plan. And it won't be one second off schedule. And it's all to the praise of his glory. And so whatever gifts, whatever abilities we have, we need to remember the exhortation of Paul to the Corinthians. For who regards you as superior? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, 
Why do you boast as if you had not received it? Well, let's move on to the next section here. So we looked at God knows you perfectly and completely in verses 1 through 6. God is with you everywhere in verses 7 through 12. God is your awesome creator in verses 13 to 18. And beginning in verse 19 down through the end, you must respond rightly to your God. You must respond rightly to your God. Read verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, if you've been following along through this psalm, this, this verse should kind of take you by surprise a little bit, right? Like, where where'd these wicked guys come from? What, what, what happened here, right? So there's a clear break, almost, I would say, a, a jarring break from the previous 18 verses. And how does this connect? Up until now, it's been largely this very personal communication with David to his God regarding God's knowledge of him, God's presence with him, God's power in, in making him and forming him and ordaining sovereignly all his days. But now all of a sudden we have this introduction of, of the wicked. Descriptions and, and actions of these men, they're, they're referred to as men of bloodshed in 19. They speak against or they speak of God wickedly. They're hostile to God. He says plainly in verse 20 that they're your enemies. And they, they take God's name in vain. And these are, are strong words coming from David. We might even feel a little bit uncomfortable with this kind of language. Like maybe David's getting a little carried away here. But we should take note of the way that David is aligning himself with his God. David is demonstrating his loyalty, his devotion to God. And remember the words of Jesus that our love for Christ in comparison to our love for others should look like what? Hatred, right? It's, of course, we're not to hate our you know, brothers and sisters and loved ones. But the point is, Total, the, the devotion that we give to God, the worship to God, it's on another level. It's on another plane. And if you love father or mother more than Christ, what? You're not worthy of him. If you love son or daughter more than him, you're not worthy of him. If you love your spouse more than him, you're not worthy of him. You can't be his disciple. Christ demands total allegiance to him. And that is what David is showing here. Take note of who his hatred and loathing is directed to and why. He says, I hate those who hate you. I hate those who rise up against you. God, your enemies are my enemies. I'm on your side, God. I'm with you. David is passionate. He is zealous. He is devoted to his God. 
He is loyal to his God. He will not tolerate those who hate God. He is not going to compromise even the smallest way with these God-hating enemies. It reminds me of Joshua's final words in his farewell address to Israel in Joshua 24. Listen to these familiar words of Joshua. Now, therefore, speaking to Israel, this is supposed to be the covenant people of God. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Apparently they had taken these along with them. And serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, our last section here as we're winding down. You must respond rightly to your God in relationship to your own heart. And I think this really puts this section, that strong language, it puts it in perspective because we learn some things about David here. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Take note of the humility and the sober self-examination that David demonstrates here in these verses. It's obvious that David did not have the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisee that Jesus spoke of in Luke 18. Remember this Pharisee? the self-righteous man, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. No. David's humble attitude here was one of contrition and humility before his all-seeing and all-knowing God. And his heart and attitude would be more like the tax collector whom Jesus contrasted against the self-righteous Pharisee when he said, Jesus said this, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And listen to what Jesus said. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the great news of the gospel is that if any of these enemies whom David spoke about, these enemies who took God's name in vain, these enemies who were men of bloodshed, these enemies who hated God and rised up against, if they would but turn and repent, if they would just acknowledge the sin And the wickedness of their heart, this gracious God would forgive them. And just like this tax collector, they could go to their house justified. They could join David's side, or better yet, join God's side. (laughs) And remember Isaiah, a prophet, holy man, faithful man. But what happens when he stands in the presence of God? 
when he sees this magnificent display of God's holiness, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This was the heart of David. This was the work that God had done in David's heart. Or like Peter, when he witnessed the power of Jesus Christ in the miraculous catch of fish, being overwhelmed by being in the presence of the Holy One, he responded in this way, Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, this miraculous catch, he fell down to Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But the beautiful thing is when we respond to that God in that way, we recognize our sin, we confess it, forsake it, we find mercy, we find forgiveness. And now again, in a similar way, it seems that David, filled with the Holy Spirit, is overwhelmed by the omniscience and the omnipresence and the power of God. In verses 19 to 22, he considered those who hated God, those who dishonored his God by what they said and by how they lived. And his response was one of hatred and loathing. He wanted nothing to do with them. But now he has to humbly and soberly evaluate his own heart in the presence of this great God. And similar to the tax collector and to Isaiah and to Simon Peter, it seems that now David is awakened to his own sinfulness as he's thinking about God's perfect knowledge of him, God's presence which is always with him. His heart that does not always love what God loves and doesn't always hate what God hates. He acknowledges that there is an enemy within He becomes aware and sensitized to the remnants of the wickedness that he hates in others within his own heart. And in humility, he asks God, verse 23, search me, O God. Wait. He already said God searched him. God already knew him perfectly. Is is David having a lapse of memory here? David would not be content or satisfied with an external, heartless, dead form of religion or even correct theology. God's complete, perfect, comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of David has been a major theme of this psalm. And here David is welcoming God's examination. He doesn't want to play games with God. He is not seeking to hide from God. He is not wanting to be a hypocrite. He knows it's impossible. It's not impossible to be a hypocrite, but it's impossible to hide anything from God. You're only playing games with yourself. He doesn't want to play games with his God, and he recognized the futility of trying to hide anything from God. And so David asked God to try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way God, is there anything offensive in me? Is there anything that would be grieving to your spirit? Anything that I'm blind to? Anything that's going to hinder my fellowship with you? Anything that's going to dishonor you? Anything that's going to pull my heart away from you and lead me in the everlasting way? Lead me in the everlasting way. As I mentioned before, the truth of the gospel 
specifically justification by faith alone and Christ alone by faith alone, grace alone. That is the only way that we can rejoice in God's total knowledge of us and God's presence with us because we know that everything that God sees about us and knows about us, it was paid for on the cross. And Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full. So if you are in Christ, and it's not that we think lightly of our sin, it's not that we don't grieve over past sins, it's not that we don't continue to strive in holiness, but I can rejoice in God's perfect knowledge of me because I am in Christ. I am in him. And Christ is with me always, forever. I don't need to fear punishment. I don't need to fear wrath. I don't need to fear separation from God. And I can even welcome God to search me and and know my heart. Try me, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me, lead me in the everlasting way. Apart from Christ, these truths that we've been considering are actually terrifying. And they're actually damning in the literal sense of the word. So I plead with you today to examine your own hearts. God already knows it. I remember people would say this. It's so true. Don't play games with God. You're only fooling yourself. You're only fooling yourself. But God invites you. You can, like the tax collector, you can confess your sin, admit your guilt before this holy God. Say, God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me in Christ. Trust Christ today before it's forever too late. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the the truths that we've been examining. And we thank you for Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our righteousness given to us as a gift by faith. It came at such a great cost. You purchased us with your precious blood. Help us to rejoice in that. Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts, you examine us, or we know that you already know it, but we invite it, Lord, because we, we, we don't want to have things in our lives and things in our hearts that are grieving to you. We want to please you. We want to love you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We pray for any that might be here today that are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Lord, please grant them life. Lord, through your word, give them life. Soften their hearts. Lord, bring them to their knees that they might rejoice in the perfect gift of your righteousness through Christ. We pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.